Our guest this week is Scott Crone from Coda Management Group. Scott is a Chicago native whose career began in architecture in 1991. In 2012, Crone founded Coda Management Group, a firm who specializes in managing real estate assets. Since its inception, Coda has managed a wide range of real estate, including single and multifamily homes, retail, commercial warehouse, and self-storage and multi-use flex athletic spaces. On this episode, we talk to Scott about his company's specialty, which is converting older buildings into Class A self-storage. We talk about the challenges of dealing with city zoning departments. We talk about the kinds of buildings they stay away from. And finally, we talk about an existing tax loophole that many people may not be aware of called Opportunity Zones that allows you to wipe out the tax burden on all capital gains. I'm Neil, and this is The Road to Family Freedom. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sun Belt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things? and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash storage. That's roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Scott Crone, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Thank you, Neil, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. You, we were just discussing um, right before we started all of our mutual friends in self storage. Uh, you know, you know Scott Myers. You know Fernando Angelucci. Uh, let's see who else do you know. Mike, Wag- you know Michael Wagner. I've not had the opportunity to meet him, but um, uh, guys in our office have uh, interacted with Mike. Gotcha. AJ Osborne. I do not know AJ. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Okay, so you you got your start. You had a very successful uh, architecture firm. How did you find yourself in uh, investing in real estate? Well, I, I began getting my master's in architecture right out of college. In fact, I, I had a whole three weeks off between college and my master's degree. And I was fortunate and blessed that my professor owned a real estate development architectural firm and contracting firm. And he was really focused on multifamily. And so my master's thesis and my work for it with him for six years was predominantly in multifamily. We did apartments as well and a couple single family homes. And so my whole background was that. And I mean, that's really how I got into real estate. And, you know, when I started Coda, which was a development design build firm back in 1998, we were focusing on multifamily. We were focusing on single family. We were focusing on mixed use in townhomes. And then um, when the crash came in 08, 09, that's when we were, you know, sort of forced to go into apartments as everybody was. And then it was in 13 that I began working on our first self-storage facility. Gotcha. Um, so before we dig into storage, um, what was your, what did your first investment property look like? What was that? Well, the first time I invested cash into a deal was when I was working for that, my, you know, my professor and his development company, we were working on a 40 unit, $24 million condo building. And 
I partnered with my father and we both invested money into that deal. Um, but the first deal I did on my own, we bought a home for $300,000 and we tore it down and built a new one for three fifty, and uh, we sold it for a million fifty, And that was back in 1998. Okay. So was your intention from the very beginning to uh, just buy that and do a tear down flip? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we identified it as a teardown house. And where was that? That was in a small little town called Glencoe, Illinois, just north of the city of Chicago. Okay. Gotcha. And uh, what, uh, what, was, what was your total investment that you had to, to put in to, uh, to acquire that deal? For me personally or the, the structure of the deal? The structure of the deal. We had a um, $100,000 of equity that we raised and uh, we borrowed the rest and the banks were giving phenomenal terms back then. So I think we had like 90% debt and 10% equity. Wow. Un- unheard of in today's day. Yeah, no, <laughs> especially, <laughs> especially in the age of Corona. Uh, yeah. And then um, did you, you obviously, you then had to borrow some money. Did you have to borrow some money to build as well? Well, that was part of the, that, that was the debt structure. So, um, you know, the, the three investors who came alongside were my father, my uncle, and my grandfather. That was my, my network at that point in time. And so uh, it it had to be more than, uh, I think we had 20% because it was just a hundred grand that we raised. And, um, so I think my father and my uncle put in 25 or my grandfather put in 50 or it was, maybe it was 30, 30 and 30. I don't know, something along those lines. Gotcha. And you, and it, uh, ended up netting, it was, uh, the gross was 1.2, you said? No, it was, it was a million 50 and we returned 90% rate of return to our, our investors. And they said, do it again and don't tell anyone. <laughs> so that, that was immediately, I knew I was onto something good. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's no, that's when you know, you've got, uh, you've done well for your investors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when it's gone so well, they don't want to share. Exactly. And that's a new, I knew I had to start sharing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, um, you know, you, you have, as I mentioned before we got on the show, you have a wide ranging, um, uh, level of experience when it comes to real estate. You've been in multifamily, you've been in industrial, uh, you've been in retail. Um, but we, we're going to focus in on storage and your specialty, uh, is appears to be conversions, correct? Correct. We, we take, unlike the other people that you mentioned, um, we take existing non underperforming or non-performing buildings in urban markets and convert them into, um, self-storage facilities. Gotcha. So we're talking, you know, old warehouses, old retail, um, things like that. Uh, our Wisconsin project was a warehouse. Um, our actually Wisconsin, Toledo and Dayton were all warehouses in urban markets. Um, our building in Chicago was the original Lincoln Log Factory. And um, the one we're going after, we're about to close in Kentucky, was an old candy factory. Gotcha. So what did that first, which one, which was the first one? Uh, the first one I did was in um, just south of O'Hare Airport in the city of Chicago. And it was a, um, a warehouse and it, Right before the crash, it had been zoned for condos and townhomes. And, you know, like three months before the crash, the bank came back and said to the, the buyer, look, you got to put more equity in the deal. And the deal fell through. And, you know, 
the, the market crashed and no one was able to develop condominiums or townhomes at that point in time. And so this empty warehouse was just sitting there with the wrong zoning. And so we, we uh, had a client that wanted to use the building. And originally the mayor of the, of the community gave her nonverbal approval of the project. And then like a couple of months after we went to contract, she um, pulled it back and we went to her and said, Hey, we understand where you're coming from, but if we, if we find something else, would you be willing to rezone it for that? And she goes, you know, if you bring us something else, we'll, we'll definitely get it done. So I called up a client and I said, Hey, I got this warehouse building that could be a, a perfect self-storage facility. If you want to bring in your financial advisors and, and let us know if it works. So he came in and looked at it and said, yeah, it works, but we don't have anyone to build it. So, well, we can do that. And so that's, we did the entitlements, we did the design, we did the build for them. And then um, we also kept a portion of the building. We ended up flipping the whole thing to Compass self-storage. Gotcha. So uh, Compass is a, a class A REIT, correct? Or a big regional player at least? Yeah, I don't know if they're a REIT. I think they're a family. The reason I was pausing on that, I think they're, they're a family operation. I don't think that they're a publicly traded company or a REIT. Um, but they were they were out of Toledo and they're in the predominantly in the Midwest and they were looking to expand into the Chicago market. Gotcha. Um, what was the square footage on that building? Do you recall? Ninety thousand square feet. Ninety thousand. Um, and do you recall? Do you recall what it cost to acquire it? Ooh, this is a while ago. So I'm I'm going to say around one point seven. I think. And you typically, I know this is being recorded, but don't hold me to it. Okay. I won't hold you to it. It's good enough. It's good enough. Um, and typically what I understand with conversions is you usually lose about 25% of your square footage to hallways and, and other things. Is that roughly correct? Yeah. So from an efficiency point of view, they're not as, they're not as efficient as, um, multifamily, you know, keep in mind my background is multifamily. So we would, you know, double load a corridor and have about 90% efficiency hallways, corridors, and um, elevator and stairwells. That's all we had it. But obviously with lockers, in order to get the density up, you have to have a lot more hallways. And um, with a, excuse me, with a older building, it might not be as regular. And so you might lose some efficiency there, plus the areas where you drive into it. And so if we, if we can get around 75% efficiency, that's, that's very good. Gotcha. Um, and do you recall what it cost to do the build out on that? I'm holding you, I'm making you reach. Yeah, back I, I want to say a couple million dollars. Um, okay. You know, I, I, I don't have them. Remember the numbers off. Full, full climate controlled. It was a full climate control facility. Correct. Okay. Class. So when, when you were done, it was a class a facility. Yeah. And then they, they, they even expanded further. They put, um, um, non-conditioned outdoor units on the, on the back parking lot and they expanded it even further. Gotcha. And then did you guys, once it was up and once it was built, did you guys just hand it off or did you? Yeah, it was flipped you, at CFO. We, we didn't have you any, didn't do the we didn't take any rentals on it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So for our audience that maybe doesn't quite, uh, that's never been involved with any kind of a conversion like that, what's involved with re-entitling it with rezoning a building like that typically? Well, that, that's not, that uh, was not a typical one. Um, when you go through the process, we've re, we've rezoned a couple of them. Um, that one was unique because it was zoned for self-storage and then it was rezoned apartments and townhomes and then we had to rezone it back. So we, we obviously said, hey, look, 
it's been zoned this, it's obviously you've approved it for that. You've intended it for that. So it can't be that bad to have it. But normally when you go through the rezoning process, the community that you're working in has a specific list of what they're trying to determine whether or not it's going to be advantageous or negative to the community. And you have to answer a series of questions. And usually there's anywhere from 10 to 20 questions that you have to go through. And a lot of times they may seem redundant and you just have, if you don't answer them, and if, or if you don't answer them well, then it's a grounds for them not to approve it. So you, you really need to put on your lawyer hat, if you will, and look at it from a lawyer perspective and, you know, write them as if you're trying to prove a case. And that's why I'm saying where, where your lawyer hat. So everything you have to do, you just say, well, it's not because we feel this way. You have to show evidence as to why it is that this merits what you're asking it to do. And so, you know, they have those criteria and those standards and it's whether or not it, it enhances the general well-being of the community. And so a lot of what we could say was it, it's been this, that was our evidence. It's been this, it continues, it will be going back to what it originally was intended. Um, you know, the, the nice thing about self-storage for us is a lot of is impact. What is the impact on the community? Well, from a traffic vehicle, traffic impact, self-storage is very small. We only have about four or five visitors per day. So you don't have this huge parking requirement like multifamily where you have to have like two parking spaces for every two bedroom and one for every one bedroom. And so there isn't a whole lot of traffic going in and out. There's not a whole lot of parking. Um, there's no impact on the schools. So you're, if we're adding like 600 residential condominiums or apartments, then that's going to impact the school. Are they going to have enough seats? Are they going to have enough chairs? Are the buildings big enough? All those sorts of things. And so the, the only area where self-storage is really a, a somewhat a negative to um, a municipality is there's not a whole lot of sales. I mean, there's not a lot of sales tax and the property value doesn't increase tremendously. So it's not like they're going to get a spike in the real estate taxes. And so, you know, but it, it does turn a non-performing or underperforming building into a vibrant building in the community, vibrant meaning it's not dark, you know, the lights are on, it's, you know, providing a service, it's enhancing the community. Um, it's, it's, we are creating jobs, not granted, not a lot of jobs, but we are creating jobs and it's providing a service for the community. And those are the arguments that we make when every time we go before a zoning board is that, you know, this is a needed element in the community. Every, every city has them, especially in urban markets. And when you have smaller apartments, people can't afford storage in a bigger apartment. The only way to do that is to rent a bigger apartment or buy a bigger condo. This is a, a more economic viable solution to give people an alternative. Gotcha. And do you typically, like I have, I've run across this before where communities have basically just flat out put a moratorium on, on any more storage for a variety of reasons. One, um, as you said, uh, there's not always a great deal of tax revenue that they get from it. Um, they often, um, especially for the class B, class C storage, a lot of times it's just kind of ugly. It's just these big, massive, you know, buildings. Now I've, I've been to your website. Uh, your buildings look gorgeous. They're beautiful. There's these, you know, old brick buildings that, um, unless you kind of had a window that's got the, you know, the storage slats in the window, you wouldn't necessarily know that it was a, a storage facility. Um, have you ever run up against a community where the city's just like, yeah, we don't want, we don't want any more storage. We just no more storage. Well, first, thank you for the compliment on, on our construction. So we appreciate that. Um, two. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've had it twice. Um, actually three times. 
Um, the first was in Milwaukee. Before we bought the building, um, we had the designation storage and we got a certificate of occupancy, which was a requirement for closing that you know transferred the business from storage to us in self-storage. And we closed. And then three months after the closing, the city of Milwaukee came to us and said, you're no longer, you don't have your certificate of occupancy. And I'm like, well, why not? We have the piece of paper right here. And they're like, well, we changed the definition from storage to self-storage. So therefore you don't have it. And we're like, well, <laughs> so we had to go through the rezoning process. And during that process, they literally said to other applicants who were going for self-storage, we're not allowing any more of this into the community. Now they, they, grandfathered us into it because we already had it. And so they, that was the distinction they were making between us and this other one. Um, but we've both the first, you know, communities in Toledo and Dayton that we've run into, um, they did not want it to be um, self-storage in the fact that the property was already zoned for storage and self-storage were like, it's as of right. If you didn't want it, then why did you make the zoning designation? And <clears throat> They ultimately they couldn't stop us because we had the entitlement. So in both Toledo and Dayton, um, we we were, you know we could build it as of right, but we certainly had to make concessions in order to appease the you know the, the governing bodies. Gotcha. Um, have there ever been any things that you've had to tack on, maybe adjustments to the the plan uh, to satisfy uh, the zoning board? In the, the city in Toledo, we after we had the building permit, they came back and made us change the exterior elevation. So the the original building had rusted corrugated metal on it, and all we did was take that off and put it new in all the same color. And in the neighbor who was on the um, the Toledo Warehouse Architectural Review Committee got it, you know his underwear up in a bum wad about it, and like heaven forbid that we have this in you know, Toledo. And our position was like, we have a right to change the materials. We're, we're not changing the use of the materials. We're putting up like materials over this. And we had to make other concessions. So this is after we have the building permit, we're building it. And they, they actually came and issued a stop work order for the first one was for replacing the roof. And we're like, why are we going to stop work order for this? And they're like, you don't have a permit. And we're like, yeah, it is. It's right here on the permit, replace roof. And they're like, oh, and then we got another one and then we got another one. And it was just like, it was like finally a call. I'm like, what is it you guys are trying to accomplish? You know, what, what is it? What is the issue here? Yeah. And so um, we had to make the windows look like windows. And I'm like, and my whole argument to them was you really want glass in a self storage facility so that you can look in and see people's stuff inside a locker. I go, that's not, it's not a pretty sight. I mean, that's the reason why self-storage facilities generally don't have windows. Yeah. You know, it's like, you don't want to see that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, wiser heads prevailed and we came to a resolution on how we were going to adjust it. Any, any tips for someone who's maybe going through this process and, and working through a, a zoning board on, on how to negotiate with a city? If you've never done it before, I, I would certainly not venture into certainly a commercial project on your own without hiring consultants. Um, <clears throat> a lot of developers will hire an attorney um, as well. Yeah, obviously, you have to have an architect in order to prepare plans and those sorts of things. But you might have to have a, a, a city planner. You might have to have a traffic consultant. You might have to have all these different things. Because, 
you know, the first PUD I worked on was my master's thesis, which was converting a 50 acre site. That was the old Sarah Lee um, factory into, um, you know, 400 condominiums, townhomes and, and uh, single family homes. And so I, I learned it. I, by the time I left that company, I had done three PUDs. And so I, you know, one of them, I had, I had to go to 36 meetings in order to get it accomplished. Wow. And if I, if I hadn't had someone looking over my shoulder and obviously guiding me, the owner of the company was telling me what to do, um, it would have been a disaster. And so if you're going to, if you're going to venture out onto this on your own, make sure that you hire the good consultants to people to help you. You know, that's, that's certainly, we've come alongside clients to do that. Um, we've done it with churches. We've done it with self-storage. We've, we've done these sorts of things. And so we, we understand what's necessary. So for us, I don't hire an attorney to write up the defense because I know what is needed in the defense. Um, the one time I did hire an attorney, he totally didn't understand real estate and he totally botched it. And I had to pull it back from him and say, like, get I went up there and started presenting because it was just going down the wrong track. And, um, and so you you need to have those, you need to be able to have architectural plans. And because we do those to design, you know, I was able to to facilitate that. And so we, we can accomplish a lot of those things in house, but if you didn't have those services in house and you'd certainly have to hire them. Gotcha. For someone who's maybe um, more on the passive investor side, you know, somebody who's looking at investing in a, a storage deal, uh, what are some of the benefits uh, to investing in a conversion versus a ground up development, you know, a single story uh, or a ground up development, you know, completely from the ground up or an existing facility? Well, we, we break. Um, self-storage facilities into three asset classes. So class C for us is like for first generation, more rural. Um, you, you were mentioning Fernando and, you know, he's really specialized in, in finding those little nuggets, those little gems um, that are out there. And those are typically operated by mom and pops. And we call them class C because they're older. They're typically not climate controlled. And we equate them to a penny stock. So, you know, what he's doing is that he's going in and, and finding a, a little bit of margin that he can improve the performance on it in order to increase the value. So that's, it's not going to be a big yield, but it's going to be a consistent good yield and it's going to be a performing asset. Um, the class B would be more like in the suburban market, newer, might be climate controlled, you know, maybe instead of having gravel driveway area paved. And we consider that like a blue chip, which is going to perform in a good or a bad market. And then what we're doing is class A facilities, which generally speaking are all, all going to be either new or conversions because of the fact that they're in fully enclosed and you drive into them, they're fully climate controlled. It's just, it's just a new product, especially in the urban market. And we view those as growth stocks. So you're going to see both appreciation as well as cash flow, but it's going to take longer to get there. And so, excuse me, depending on what you're looking to do as your investment, you know, what is your investment goal and criteria? you know, determine B, C, or A. Um, and that's where Fernando and I, you know, Fernando is now moving into more of the new development. Um, but what we see why we're doing what we're doing is I'm buying buildings at like 11, $12 a square foot. I, I can't build a new building for that price point. So inherently, if I can come in and buy the property and the building at $11 a square foot, then I have a competitive advantage against new construction. And typically it's about a 40% margin. So I have a 40% margin of being able to alter my price in order to stay 
under budget or, you know, to make sure I'm, you know, leasing up compared to new construction. Our buildings are, are running around, you know, between, you know, uh, call it seven, seven, eight million dollars to $10 million to build and everything. And the new ones are going to be costing you 12 to 14 million to build them. Gotcha. And same number of units. Gotcha. So, I mean, the main, the main benefit is just that you're able to, you're able to just build cheaper. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm not build cheaper. I'm, I'm, I'm able to get my operational structure cheaper than a new. Gotcha. The, everything, not just the build. Gotcha. And what does a typical, you know, if you're acquiring the, the bones of the building for, let's say $11 a square foot, how do, how much is the typical build out cost per square foot? Uh, and that, that, that depends based upon, you know, what sort of services we're inheriting. Um, but, you know, we're, we're putting in around 40 or $50 a square foot. You know, do we have to adjust the elevators? Do they have new mechanical equipment? Do we need to replace the roof? You know, what are the exterior fenestrations? Those, those are all the different things that, you know, vary from building to building. And so, you know, overall, we're looking to be, you know, around $60 a square foot. All in. Right. Gotcha. Um, so self-storage has been a really a very hot asset class over the last five years. Um, maybe, maybe not as hot as multifamily, but that certainly seems to be shifting a little bit just from, um, from my 5,000 foot view. Um, what do you see as your primary hurdles to acquiring properties that, uh, will allow you to provide a decent risk adjusted return going, you know, let's say, well, I, I think the, I mean, Multifamilies had this run since 08, 09, when, you know, basically the, the crash forced everyone into multifamily and the cap rates has just been, the compression on it's been incredibly ridiculous. That's why I sold my multifamily. I was like, I'm not going to get a better cap rate right now. Then, you know, just might as well get rid of it and focus on self-storage. So the barriers for entry for us, for our product, you know, is, you know, obviously we have to look at the demographics, what markets are underserved, which markets are not being served. But once we've identified a market and that's, you know, a three to five mile area of a city, then we're looking at entitlements. We're looking at, um, is the building big enough? You know, if we're doing our facility, we, you know, we're not going to go in and buy a 30,000 square foot building. It's got to be around between, you know, 80 to 110,000 square feet. Um, what is the shape? What is the condition of that building? And then, you know, are there any other um, incentives or programs within the local municipality in order to make it worthwhile for us? You know, we're, we're focusing on opportunity zones and we're also focusing on pace financing. So, you know, we're looking at demographics, we're looking at zoning, we're looking at the community, we're looking at, um, you know, what's the market rates, and then we're looking to see what other programs. We've done historic tax credits, as well as we've sold off cell towers and we've done the opportunity zones as well as pace financing. So those are all the different ways in which we get creative with the capital stack. Gotcha. Um so you mentioned two things there. I want to, I understand what one of them is, but I'm going to ask for clarification for our audience. That's never heard what an opportunity zone is. Could you explain that? Well, you may have heard it um, in the most recent election um, because it's one of the things that Biden is um, saying how evil Trump was that to do this thing. But in reality, it was created in the Obama administration when Biden was vice president and it never got enacted into law for whatever reasons, Steve Glickman who created it, was couldn't get Obama to, to focus in on it. And he, he was sitting thinking that the program was dead until he said Trump was under attack at a news conference. 
And he said, well, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about opportunity funds and how it's going to change, you know, the American landscape. And then his like phone started blowing up according to him. And so what it is, is it's a program that was passed in when Trump first came into office in 17, but it got enacted into 18. And I, I didn't really realize how this works, but, you know, Congress comes up and says, we, we want this, but they don't really tell you how to do it. They, they give it then to the Department of Treasury to sort of figure out how it's going to be run. And the Department of Treasury comes back and says, well, here's what we think. What do you think? And they say, well, we think it's this, but change a little bit. And then it goes back and then it comes back and then they say, fine, this is how we're going to implement it. And so the entire law is only three quarters of a page. And it's like half on one page and a quarter on the other page. And so in the spring of 18, I'm reading this. And I can't really make heads or tails of it. But the, the, the thrust of it is that in order to encourage economic development and growth, they're allowed local municipalities. So not the federal government, but the local state. And, you know, let's say Chicago or you're in Vegas, correct? Correct. So Vegas designate those areas where you want to encourage economic growth. People assume bad neighborhoods, but it doesn't necessarily mean bad neighborhoods. For us, it's downtown Toledo. It's downtown Dayton. It's downtown Louisville, Kentucky. Those three are all in opportunity zones, not the entire city, but the area where our building is. And they said, if you invest a significant amount of money into those, if people do that with capital gains, we if they hold them the money in that asset in the fund for 10 years, we will wipe out your capital gain taxes. And if the money grows in that fund during that period of time, it will be tax free. So basically it put a huge kink on the 1031s. In fact, a lot of our investors who were going to do 1031s came into our program because it offered a lot more flexibility in product, debt financing, structure, market product, all those sorts of things. And so at worst, if you don't hold it for them, then all you're doing is tax deferring. So after five years, you get the first bonus. And after seven years, you get a next bonus. And after 10 years, you've wiped it out. And so that's where our investors have said, hey, look, you know, we realize that self-storage is a long-term investment. We'd love to take our capital gains and invest it tax-free. So right off the bat, we're giving our investors a 30% tax shelter at minimum. And so that's one of the things that they appreciate. Well, I mean, my understanding of it is it, it Basically, it allows you to take you've you've got a, a payout from some investment you've you've got that's got to have to be you know paid tap, capital gains. Ordinarily, what people would have done is tried to st- find a ten thirty one exchange into, uh, but the opportunity zone fund you're able to just put it right into that, uh, wipes out the capital gains on that, and then as a bonus is like you said, if you keep it in for ten years, uh, you wipe out all the capital gains, which is huge. Not just real estate, though. That that's the beauty of it. So it's it's like if you sell your stocks, if you um, sell art, you know, jewelry, whatever it is. However, you get capital gains, it all applies. And um, so let me tell you how it is. <laughs> um, tell us, now, Scott. W- w- what's that? Tell us, Scott. <laughs> but um, the, what what it was interesting is what Biden is trying to change is that trying to put. Um, a social element of, and, and this is what I don't understand there in Biden's plan, according to his website, he wants to have the IRS starting to impact or assess the social value impact that you're having on the, the neighborhood or people who live in that community. 
I don't know how I physically would be able to accomplish that. Like if, if I create a, a self-storage facility and I hire two people to work at my facility, how, if there's a person living down the street, how am I impacting them specifically? You know, the welfare and well-being of their, you know, fine. I've provided a service. I provided uh, things I've, you know, made the neighborhood better, safer, but how can I say that I'm impacting that one family or how would the IRS monitor or, assess that and, and give a value to that. I, I, I just don't understand how we'll be feasible to accomplish that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So you also mentioned something I've never heard of, which is uh, PACE financing. Can you explain mm-hmm. that for me? So this is another federal government program. It's through the Department of Energy. So it's Property Assessed Clean Energy Act. And so again, the federal government said, hey, we want to encourage, and th- this was done prior to Trump. So I think this was in the Obama administration, but Basically, they said, we want to encourage economic performance of a building. So make a building's more efficient. And if you make the building more efficient, then the money that you spend to take it from here to here is going to be through PACE financing. And so what the PACE financing does is it doesn't get applied. It's, it's like a debt or bond structure, but it gets applied to the real estate taxes. So the banks view it as equity because it's above the line item versus being below. There's no mortgage. It's just through a special assessment. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. Uh, I learned something new on every podcast. So thank you. Um, so where are you seeing the opportunities in conversions right now? You said you've got one going in um, uh, Louisville, downtown Louisville, Kentucky. Is that typically, are you typically trying to do downtown sort of urban cores, because that's where a lot of the old abandoned buildings are? They're not necessarily abandoned, but yes, the one in Dayton was empty for 40 years, but there's a tremendous amount of apartment growth around there. And so we are looking for more of the urban markets in the Midwest. And we're focusing on those areas because of the fact that the saturation levels tend to be lower. Like if you look at the, generally speaking, the East coast, the South and the West coast, the saturation rate for self-storage is nine and the, the national average is seven and that's seven square feet of lockers per capita. And so those markets are at nine. And so the markets we're going in, the highest one is uh, four and a half. Wow. So they all have, they all have really good demand indicators. <laughs> so um, is there anything besides um, demand indicators that you tend to, you know, you would warn someone who was looking at doing conversion to maybe be wary of? I mean, we did. We had a building in uh, the Philadelphia market where, I mean, granted, I, the Louisville building is the ugliest building that we've ever bought to date. I mean, it's <laughs> like, if we say we buy ugly building, I, I can I can point you exactly where it is. And, I, you know, there's not too much in construction that scares the bejeebies out of me. But we had, an, you know, let's just call him a real estate investor, come to us and say, hey, I want to do this building. It was in the Philadelphia market. The demographics look great, but I looked at the building. I mean, and he, he, he got in the building somehow and, you know, it's a multi, you know, five-story, you know, concrete structure. There's from Google maps, there's plants growing on the roof. I mean, the, the entire roof is, is not supposed to be a green roof. There's been, it's been vacant and he took pictures on the inside and literally the concrete columns had so much spalling and deterioration from them that it was just going to be, you had to tear down the building. And yeah. I literally said to him, you know, you, you can't get this building for free and you would still have to spend more money than you'll get out of it. 
So, you know, that's one of the things that we do look for. You're looking for good, good bones where the building, you're not going to have to tear it down in order to, to make it work. Right. I mean, we looked at a building in Racine, Wisconsin, and the ceiling heights were seven feet. You know, we, we can't make it work with seven foot high ceilings. So the first floor was like 20. We're like, man, this is awesome. We get to the second floor, it was like seven foot ceilings. And we're like, done. We, we just walked out of the building. Yeah. You're not going to typically tear out the flooring and just keep the exterior walls. Uh, we, well, in Toledo, we didn't even tear out the flooring. All we, there, were, there were all these wood floors and we just sanded them and put a commercial coating on them. And they, they, look, fun, they look phenomenal. It's absolutely gorgeous. That's great. So for someone who is um, maybe looking to invest, I mean, you guys um, with Coda, uh, are you guys, do you guys bring on passive investors? All of our investors are passive. Okay. Um, and are you doing them uh, with 506C or 506B? Each entity has its own um, its own structure. So okay. it Sometimes, varies from project so to project. You've done, you've done some 506C, which is accredited only, and you've done some 506B, which allows sophisticated. Sophisticated. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Scott, thank you so much for sharing with our audience today. If any of them want to reach out to you and find out more about what you are about, uh, what would be the best way for them to do that? Well, Neil, before I give that out, that information, what I'd like to offer to your listeners, because we've spent so much time talking about um, development, entitlements, conversions, those sorts of things. If, if someone has a property that they would like to, you know, assess, determine whether it would be good for it, um, if they email us, but they, if they go on our website, CODA, C-O-D-A-M-G for managementgroup.com or info at CODAMG.com and they, they put your name on there, um, we will set up a free call with them where we will assess the building, assess the market for them and say, you know, here's, here's our, our overall assessment. This industry is, as you, we've clearly spoken about, is too small. Um, I know Fernando would be all over me if I even thought about stealing one of his projects, let alone <laughs> anybody else's. So, um, you know, even in our mastermind, it's such a small community that we know what's going on abroad. I'm not going to steal a deal. That's not our, it's not our business model. It's not our intention, you know, fine. You do it once. And that's, that's as much as people know. So if you want us to sign a non-disclosure non-circumvent, we'd be more than happy to, but ultimately Give us the property address. We'll run the metrics. We'll run the data and give you an assessment of whether or not it's worthwhile to go after. And we'll look at the building, you know, if you have pictures or Google maps or whatever it is and determine, you know, if it's good or not. Okay. So they can do that by going to either following the link, uh, codamg.com uh, or shoot you an email at info at codamg.com. Correct. That'd be great. Okay. Well, Scott, thanks again. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much, Neil. Okay, that was Scott Crone from Coda Management. Uh, you can check him out at codamg.com. It's C-O-D-A-M-G.com. If you want to find out more about what they're all about, uh, you can see pictures of the conversions that they've done. Uh, and I meant it when I said it. They really are uh, beautiful looking buildings. You really wouldn't necessarily know that they're, they're storage. Um, you know, this was a little bit a little bit different of, of an episode for us, so I'm not going to really dig into our four values that we normally do. And I'm gonna, but I'm going to talk about uh, the key lesson learned for me, which is, um, and I, it was something I knew about, but a lot of people maybe don't know about it, which is opportunity zones. Um, and you know, no matter how you feel about the politics of it, um, you know, the government frequently puts forward. Um, tax incentives to try to encourage investors to do things that they want them to do. 
Um, and that's basically all an opportunity zone is. Um, but if you re if you like Google opportunity zones, um, or opportunity zone fund, um, you will probably find, um, some of these funds that are doing that. Now you, if they're advertising it, you are going to have to be an accredited investor. Um, but if you're not accredited, um, then you're going to have to just network and you're just going to have to start asking around, uh, for, uh, investment, you know, companies that are doing these deals that are, um, and just ask them, Hey, do you have any projects that are in opportunity zone funds? And if you have some stocks that you're looking to sell, um, and avoid capital gains and just roll it into this opportunity uh, zone fund, uh, and you're okay with it sitting there for, uh, 10 years, then you will pay no capital gains on that, uh, on either your initial earnings that you put it in there and on the money that comes out of there. Um, so check that out. It's uh, really something that I, I encourage you to look into. All right. Once again, that was Scott Crone from Coda Management. We thank him for his time and uh, we're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels on your road to financial freedom.